Vietnam War, an American officer was famous for saying we had to destroy the village in order to save it. Did Abraham Lincoln destroy the Constitution in order to save it during the Civil War? We'll ask our guest, Dr. Philip Shaw Paladin, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Hi, this is Jeff and Rochelle from Travel Hub Radio with another Travel Hub tip. What is the best rule of thumb when tipping on a cruise? While it is completely up to you, most experts suggest 10 to $12 per day per person. This is usually settled on the last night of your cruise and may be distributed among your stateroom attendant, your waiter, the maitre d' and their assistants. If you want to save yourself the hassle of budgeting for this additional expense, consider prepaying your gratuity when you book your cruise or sometime before you set sail. If you want to add the gratuity later, that is your option. There are a few cruise lines that suggest a tipping optional policy. It is felt that service personnel are paid considerably better than on other cruise lines and the need to tip is not required. These will usually be found on higher-end luxury-style cruise lines. Some cruise lines will impose a service charge of $10 per person per day. This can be adjusted up or down at the end of the cruise as you see fit. Keep in mind, though, that gratuity are a large part of the income for the service industry. If there is anybody on the ship that you feel has done an exceptional job to make your cruise vacation more enjoyable, let that person know how you feel, both by extending a worthy gratuity and thanking that person personally. For traveling tips and much more, make sure you tune in to Travel Hub Radio, live Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, or listen to the show archives and podcast right here on World Talk Radio and TravelHubRadio.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today talking with Dr. Philip Shaw Paladin, author of The People's Contest, A History of the Civil War, and numerous other books on the subject. We talked in our first segment uh, a little bit about Abraham Lincoln and his constitutionalism. And I'd like to return to that subject. Phil, you were suggesting that, that Lincoln uh, you know, tested the Constitution, but but was, uh, as a lawyer, uh, felt bound by his oath and did not uh, go beyond uh, go beyond the bounds of the Constitution. Is that fair to say? I think, yeah. I, there are a couple of instances where Lincoln speaks in ways that uh, would justify the idea that this guy's a dictator. He's... Uh, there's a moment uh, in 1863, I think in May of 1863, where he says that the man who stands by silently while the fate of his country is being discussed cannot be misunderstood. If not stopped, he is likely to help the enemy. Well, this is a, this is a pretty strange sentence because if the man is not stopped from being silent, he is likely to help the enemy. Um, but I don't know of anybody who got arrested for being silent while the fate of his country was being discussed. I, I think I'm, probably everybody was talking about that subject. But uh, I, I think you have to see this particular pretty extreme statement in the context of Lincoln talking while Robert E. Lee is bringing the Army of Northern Virginia up into Pennsylvania. 
And one of the reasons that Lee is going up there is that he and Jefferson Davis believe that segments of the northern population are loyal to the Confederacy. They just need a protective army to be there. And that's the point at which Lincoln says, uh, uh, don't uh, you know, look out for the man who stands silently when the fate of his country is being dis- discussed. Uh, so he, he can be quoted with, uh, occasionally with words like that. But uh, I think um, more often than not, Lincoln is writing constitutional justifications for what he does, uh, calling on the Constitution. And um, not ever, to my knowledge, uh, does he say, to hell with it, um, this doesn't work. He, he interprets what he's got and expands it, but I don't think he ever fully abandons it. The, the war powers are an example of that. The, the, the Constitution does grant the president powers in wartime mm-hmm. that, are, that are not ordinarily granted, and Lincoln is, is the first American president to, to use the phrase war powers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he's definitely looking for ways to expand what he can do. Yeah, I think he's looking for a way to save the Constitution, because if the Constitution isn't expansive enough to meet the crisis of the war, what can, what good uh, can it be? And a Constitution to be vital has to be a, a, a way of responding to uh, extraordinary events, unless you want to have just one every 20 years like Thomas Jefferson did. Um, but even then, you couldn't be sure that the crises would, would come up every 20 years. They might come up every t- every two or three years. Um, so I think the Constitution itself has to be uh, broadened in order to be alive. And um, I think Lincoln does this. Um, he's certainly often accused of being a dictator because a lot of uh, newspapers were shut down for a while. Then um, the Landingham is arrested. Uh, and I think maybe in the Landingham arrest, Lincoln goes a little bit too far, although the the person who was uh, in charge of that thing, Ambrose Burnside, maybe he would be more justly accused of uh, taking uh, Blandingham and putting him in prison because Blandingham's speeches, or one, one of the major speeches got him arrested, uh, he, uh, Blandingham directly said, and the remedy for all of these evils is to go to the polls and uh, vote this scoundrel out. So uh, I, I, occasionally the, the law is... Uh, transgressed, but um, I, th- I think uh, I think not often. And given the way Lincoln resolved that by, by banishing Blandingham to, to the south, it would suggest that he didn't, that, that, that I think you're right, that Burnside may have overstepped what he was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly created a political problem for Lincoln when he well, did that. Well, you, you see another angle on this. Um, up in Wisconsin, there's a man named Brick Pomeroy. And Pomeroy publishes the, a newspaper called, I think it's called the Lacrosse Democrat. Uh, in the middle of the, camp, uh, the campaign of 1864, uh, Pomeroy delivers himself of a statement that goes something like that if uh, Lincoln the tyrant is uh, re-elected to serve another uh, four-year term, we hope some brave soul will take a dagger and plunge it into his heart. Now, for all I've, I've looked around about this. Not, you know, I don't think I've conducted an exhaustive search, but nobody that I've talked to seems to think that Pomeroy was ever arrested for the threat on, on the life of the president. So, um, Which you would be today. Yes, I, 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 he probably wouldn't have been able to get to the end of the paragraph before he was uh, being hauled off by 
And another interesting thing about this whole dictatorship question is how many people were free to call Lincoln a dictator? Uh, every town, I'm sure, had its uh, had its anti-Lincoln voice, and some more than one anti-Lincoln voice, and they were always uh, promoting the idea that Lincoln, if they were Democrats, that Lincoln was a uh, was a tyrant. And here they are, the, the irony is standing on a platform calling Lincoln several kinds of a tyrant, and standing on the platform calling Lincoln several times a tyrant. Um, the man was, uh, you'd, have, you'd have to be a little strange not to understand that, the irony in that. There are a number of instances, especially in the Midwest, where troops come home on furlough in, in 63, and especially 1864, and you read about these actual pitched battles that break out in these mm-hmm. small towns where the soldiers are uh, shocked and, and angered at that kind of language, anti-Lincoln, anti-administration language. And the soldiers uh, are not shy about it. They've got guns, and they uh, they start shooting at these people who start shooting back. Right, right. I've heard of those, uh, those instances, the one outside of Indianapolis, I think, with it. A trainload of Democrats or something fires on some uh, some Republicans that they see. Uh, so this this goes on. Uh, what doesn't happen is that I think it's that the anybody declares martial law at that point and throws in jail all the people who are on the wrong side of this. No, now you do have the, the various declarations of martial law. Mark Neely has written about that. The uh... In particular, uh, he has that fascinating bit in his book, uh, the, the Fate of Liberty, about the thirteen thousand political prisoners, mm-hmm. uh, in, in which he points out that that number was sort of generated out of thin air in somebody's book a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. and it's been repeated ever since. Yeah, but there's no documentation for it. Yeah, just God bless Mark Neely for having the patience to wait through <laughs> the mile after mile of, mi- of microfilm of who really got arrested and for what reason. Um, and I, I, I think I'm be fair to Mark in saying that, that, that he believes that the number of people who were thrown, who were arrested by the military for making political statements is almost uh, small enough that you could fit them in an ordinary living room. Uh, most of these people who are captured by the, by the military are uh, engaged in try to cro- trying to cross the lines and they don't have an adequate excuse in the, um, in the opinion of the officer, so they hold them for a while and then they let them go. Or there's somebody who's cheated the soldiers on selling supplies or selling horses or things like that. That, that this sort of the, the, in, the incidents of war uh, account for many more of these arrests than the fact that somebody thinks that someone is being a traitor by what they what they're saying about uh, Lincoln and then the war itself. That's right. The, the bulk of them are in Missouri or Kentucky, where there is actual guerrilla warfare going on. Absolutely. Which, uh, let me switch gears a minute and ask you about something you wrote uh, a fair amount of time back, uh, a, a slim but really interesting volume on the, the Shelton Laurel Massacre mm-hmm. in North Carolina. Um, uh, the book is called Victims, and mm-hmm. it, it tells the story of this killing of, of southern men and boys by Confederate soldiers. Right. What what brought, got you interested in that story, or how did you come across it? Well, um, I was going to write a book on six communities during the Civil War, three north and three south, 
and I happened to start on the, the, one, one of the southern communities, Salisbury, North Carolina, and I was reading in North Carolina history, and John Barrett has a book called North Carolina in the Civil War, I, I think that's the title, mm-hmm. and in it there's a, a small paragraph where he says, talks about the, the mountain warfare, the unionists of the mountains against the Confederates, and that says that things reached their uh, their worst in January of 1863 when a uh, a regiment of the of the 64th North Carolina uh, or the 64th North Carolina regiment uh, captured and killed uh, 13 Unionist men and boys ranging in age from 13 to, to age 60. Their their commander. Denied, said that he had gotten orders from his superior, Harry Heath, uh, and uh, Heath denied the accusation. And just at that time, we were uh, they were beginning to try Lieutenant Kelly for the My Lai massacre uh, in Vietnam. And uh, I, this thing just struck me as, as potentially having such a parallel with that, and also providing. Um, angles of vision that I could maybe look at what's being written, what was being written about the Vietnam War and its atrocities and see uh, what parallels I could find uh, in this North Carolina situation. And that, uh, it worked out wonderfully well. Um, a lot of the psychiatrists of the time, of the Mi Lai period, were writing things about the what they called the atrocity-producing Incident or atrocity-producing situation, where uh, the soldier feels that even the very environment in which he's walking uh, is dangerous and evil, and that all the people in the place are dangerous and evil. And in that uh, environment, uh, he was likely to, to commit an atrocity. So um, I applied that to the atrocity up there in the North Mountain of North Carolina, and it seemed to fit very well. So. Uh, Victims has always been the, the book I had most fun working on. Uh, just maybe I shouldn't confess to having fun dealing with such a grisly incident, but intellectually it was a, certainly a lot of fun. Well, it, it's unfortunate, but it's timely again. It seems to me that uh, we're seeing a number of books in the last year and the, the year ahead, perhaps. Uh, that deal with the subject of atrocities in the Civil War and uh, the, the black flag warfare, especially in the borders and in the mountains, mm-hmm. that, that are perhaps uh, arising as a counter to an over-romanticized version of the war, yeah. but perhaps also arising because American troops are, again, in uh, a very ambiguous combat situation every day right. where, uh, where one doesn't know who is the enemy and who is the insurgent. Right, and the difference between that that kind of environment and a regular battlefield, and you know, in a regular battlefield, you can feel like you're doing something heroic. That the person across the field from you is is also doing something heroic, or the, and the, the man, the guy who gets killed beside you, uh, that something maybe gives meaning. You have to do give meaning to that by yourself risking death, but. Uh, when you're out in an environment where the, the very the whole environment itself seems to be uh, against you, uh, the the inclination is just to strike out at the, any any opportunity is, is is really there. And and uh, yeah, one hopes we will not 
see more of that in the present, but certainly the the study of the Civil War and many people who study it as a hobby do tend to focus on the troops in the, marching in straight lines with the flags overhead, mm-hmm. the enemy clearly delineated up on that ridge, and, and there is heroism and, and bravery and spectacle. Mm-hmm. Which I think is one of the reasons why people are fascinated by the war. There's a, it's a sort of a way of participating in the heroism of their ancestors uh, by by studying what their ancestors went through. But if the ancestors were were burning bridges in the Tennessee mountains or being hanged as uh, partisans or, or as, as you describe these soldiers in North Carolina, uh, fearing a bullet from every bush, and when they finally round up these these men, they just execute them without trial because they've had enough. It's all they can stand. Right. Right. Absolutely. That that's I, I don't picture reenactors going out and doing much of that. Let's let's do a reenactment of the Shelton Laurel massacre next weekend. Gosh, I, <laughs> I hope not. One hopes not, yes. Uh-huh. I wouldn't mind a movie being made about this, but uh, actually Cold Mountain came fairly close uh, to it, and uh, Charles Frazier, the author, did mention uh, my, my book, Victims, in, in, in the back of his book, Cold Mountain, but I never got a dollar of royalties from him. So. Ah, well, I guess, I guess history belongs to all of us. We don't get to <laughs> right. claim any little bits of it. Right. Well, that... Um, I mean, I'm interested in that whole trend of, of what people are writing about the war. The uh, some years ago, uh, Maris Vanovskis wrote a essay: "Have social historians lost the Civil War?" Right, suggesting that it was just purely the property of the military historians. Mm-hmm. And even now, there was a book. I, I won't name any names, but in the last year or so, there was a very thick general history of the war that went on for 500 pages without a single word of analysis or critical. Uh, thinking it was just one one battle after another, mm, mm. Um, so that kind of thing does go on. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I think I, 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 as I recall, then the the Vanaskis article he was he was trying to address the division that was, had been growing up in the history profession between the, the social, social historians who are interested in race, class, and gender, and the more traditional historians who were interested in the military and the president and the judges and, and folks like that. And uh, the, the title sort of had a double meaning to me. One was, you know, have social historians lost the war to the traditional historians, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe they ought to try to win it back. Or, but then, then the other one was uh, just uh, ha- have they lost an, any desire to understand the Civil War as, while they're off uh, chasing down the lives of prostitutes in Cincinnati and uh, the the women's movement. Uh, and various social history topics. Um, and the, the situation, I think, had arisen because the new social history sort of came out as an anti-traditional uh, argument, not only against the old ways of writing history, but this was during the uh, war in Vietnam, and the uh, and traditional history was often accused by the critics of the war and by social historians as being somehow responsible for glorifying war and thereby making it more likely uh, more likely to happen. Um, so uh, I, I, I did write that People's Contest with an, as an effort to bring together the, the new social history and the and traditional traditional history. Uh, but and it, which I think it, it succeeds in doing as a 
as, as a, any serious attempt ought to succeed because the the thing that always struck me in reading soldiers' letters or uh, especially uh, memoirs uh, by famous people or less famous people, they did not dwell on their their days uh, in the factory or on the prairie. What they wrote about at the end of their lives, their their, their keenest memories were of the war and their their time participating in it. And as a social experience, it was the defining moment for the generation that participated in it. Yes. And to try to write about that, a, a social history about any issues, race, class, gender, or anything else, without acknowledging the impact of the war seemed to me futile. Mm-hmm. But many people did try to do it at one time. I do think we're largely beyond that. Yeah, I, I, but, but I, you know, I, I still haven't seen a lot of books, uh, except focusing on the soldiers' lives. There certainly is some, some wonderful work done on that. Uh, but uh, I, w- I was interested also in the, the lives of the people who stayed at home and uh, how the, the fact of death, the 620,000 dead people, the largest percentage of dead people out of our American population in its history, uh, how people might, were affected by that. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Well, that, that's, that is a topic that needs to be addressed, and we'll do that. We'll come back in just a minute. On Civil War Talk Radio with our guest, Dr. Philip Shaw Paladin, and me, Jerry Prokopovich, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. 